the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 2 Corinthians. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Godly sorrow is having remorse over what you've done, turning from it, and turning to God, he says, which leaves no regret. Verse 11, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. Here's what he says to the Corinthian church. He says, because you had godly sorrow and then you repented, look what it has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation. You ever been indignant with yourself? Have you ever been indignant with yourself? That's a good sign that godly repentance is taking root in your soul. When you can't believe what you've done and despise the sin, it's probably because the Spirit is speaking to your spirit to guide you into repentance. I love when Pastor Gary said godly sorrow is turning away from what you've done and turning to God, leaving no regret. Godly sorrow produces righteousness in your life because you turn to God and He grows His fruit in your life. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection, subscribe to the podcast, or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. He's trying to let the church of Corinth know, don't listen to those naysayers who are, who are dissing me and letting you think that I'm not a real apostle from the Lord. He says, I, my credentials speak for themselves. You were the testimony and the fruit of my ministry. Don't believe it. So he's, he says, we've wronged no one. We've condemned no one. We've exploited no one. We have a clear conscience with all this. He says in verse 5, he says, for when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, meaning outside the church, outside of Christianity from unbelievers, fears within, talking about even the fear that he has within the church that some have rejected him and not accepted him. He says, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the, by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Now, this Titus, by the way, is the same Titus after whom one of the books of the Bible is named in the New Testament. He was sometimes a traveling companion of Paul's. And so Titus brings this message to Paul about the church of Corinth. And when Paul hears this encouragement from the church through Titus, then Paul is encouraged. That's why he says, so that my joy was greater than ever. In verse 8, he says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter... I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, 
not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. So he says to them, he goes, you know, I, I didn't have any personal joy or I wasn't personally thrilled that I had to be really direct with you in my first letter. I mean, I don't really enjoy confrontation, Paul is saying here. So I was bothered by that. I didn't like that yet. I do see that you've responded to the truth. And so now I'm happy about it. I don't, I don't like confronting you. Nobody really should like that kind of thing. But he says, I see now that you have responded to it. You had a sorrow, but that sorrow led you to repentance. That's the word there in verse nine. Would you highlight that in your Bibles? He says, yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. He says, for you became sorrowful as God intended and so were not harmed in any way by us. Verse 10, this is a great verse, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Now, he uses the word repentance there twice in verse 9 and again in verse 10. It is a biblical word, really outside of the Bible. Nobody typically is going to use this word in casual conversation, but it is an important biblical word. So here's a working definition for you. Repentance is a turning away from sin, disobedience, or rebellion, and a turning back to God. All right? It is a turning away from sin, disobedience, or rebellion, and turning back to God. That's what repentance, biblical repentance, is not just turning to God, it's turning away from something. It is saying, I renounce my ways, my former life, and I turn to God. I turn away from the old life, I turn to God. That's repentance. It's not just being sad or sorry about something. All right? And he distinguishes a godly sorrow from a worldly sorrow. He says a godly sorrow leaves no regret. Because when you're sorry in the right way before God, and then you turn to him and turn away from your sin, there's no regret because then you receive mercy and forgiveness, and so that brings joy in your life. Versus a worldly sorrow which is just feeling bad, but not doing much about it. You know the tragedy is? A lot of times, worldly sorrow is simply about feeling sad that you were caught. Godly sorrow is having remorse over what you've done, turning from it, and turning to God, he says, which leaves no regret. Verse 11, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. Here's what he says to the Corinthian church. He says, because you had godly sorrow and then you repented, look what it has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation. You ever been indignant with yourself? Like, I can't believe I did that. So that's a good thing that it can produce. What alarm. Uh, King James, New King James uh, says fear, what fear, it is the Greek word phobos, but it's not a phobia in that sense, but it is like having a, a real you know, fear of the Lord and recognizing that what you've done, taking it seriously. He says what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong, or of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. 
By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me, but just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. So the tone of the letter changes here at this point, where he is more settled that having received news from Titus, that things are going better in the church of Corinth than what he at first had thought. And so he's relieved, he's encouraged, he's glad to hear about how they are maturing in the Lord. But now into chapters 8 and 9, he's going to stretch them in an area of spiritual discipline where they need to grow. And it is in the area of generosity. If some of your Bibles, like mine, might have a subtitle right here at chapter 8 saying, Generosity Encouraged. Uh, He is going to challenge them to grow among other ways that they are growing, grow in this area of generosity. Now, for those of you who like to take notes, between chapters 8 and 9, the word grace appears six times. Between chapters 8 and 9, the word grace appears six times, and the word generous, or some form of it, generosity, appears eight times between chapters 8 and 9. What I'd like to do, because Paul sometimes doesn't write as sequentially as my brain works, so what he does is he writes the first part of chapter 8, and then he inserts a section here in the middle of chapter 8, and then he comes back to the whole idea of generosity back later in chapter 9. So what I'd like to do is, I'd like to read from chapter 8, verses 1 through 15, Then we're going to jump to chapter 9 and read a few verses because I think the topic flows a little bit better. So chapter 8, verse 1. He says, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich." And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. 
Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Now, if you would, jump to chapter 9, and I'm going to start reading at verse 6, down through the end of the chapter. Chapter 9, starting at verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. All right, go back to chapter 8, if you would, please. We, we will eventually uh, read the part that we skipped. But I wanted to link these two passages together because he spends a, a great deal of time now here talking about generosity and giving and how the church and how Christians are supposed to handle things related to material possessions. The background of this, he talks at the beginning of chapter 8 saying, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. He's talking specifically about Macedonia was the northern province of what is today Greece, and Achaia is the southern province of what is today known as Greece. Corinth is the capital of the southern province of Achaia. So Paul comes along, he says, let me, let me tell you something about your northern brothers and sisters, the Macedonian churches. And he's talking specifically about the church at Thessalonica. That's the books of First and Second Thessalonians and the church at Philippi. That's the book of Philippians. He says, they were so generous out of their extreme poverty, they gave generously. And the context here is giving generously to the saints. Now, here's what was happening in the first century. You become a Christian, and if you are a Jew, and for the first 10 years of the early church, it was exclusively made up of Jewish believers in Jesus. By this time now, it's a mixture of Jew and Gentile. But originally, when Jews came to put their trust in Jesus as the promised Messiah, they lost everything. Your fellow Jews and even your family members would have a funeral for you, even today. Orthodox, some, not all, Orthodox, particularly Hasidic Jews, if you believe in Jesus and you trust him as your Messiah, they will have a funeral for you. They disown you. Particularly in the first century, you're a Jew who believes in Jesus, you were disowned. No one's coming to your shop and buying your products anymore. You will become destitute now because you're shunned by the rest of the community. 
So what happened was in the early church, they had to start to pool their resources. It was a matter of survival. Don't ever read the book of Acts, nor what we're reading here, and think that the Bible teaches some kind of socialism or communal living. It does not. It never teaches it as a pattern. What it was teaching was, as a matter of survival, there were people who lost their livelihoods, and even worse, lost their lives in some instances, because of putting their faith in Christ. So what Paul did was, among the believers scattered throughout Asia Minor, now it would include Jew and Gentile, he would receive an offering unto the Lord. Listen, every time you give, it's always unto the Lord. It might be through a church, through a ministry, but it is always unto the Lord, okay? And Paul is receiving offerings, particularly for the church in Jerusalem, because these people are starving. These people are destitute. So he's saying to the church here in Corinth, he says, let me tell you about your brothers and sisters in Thessalonica and Philippi in Macedonia. He says, boy... They are a model church for generosity. He says, in their overflowing joy, that's verse 2, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us. Can you imagine that? That That is like the sweetest music to a pastor's ears. When people beg the pastor, how can I give more, pastor? Oh, praise God. Paul's like, they urgently pleaded with us. We just want to keep giving. Yeah, but you don't have much. Yeah, we know, but the little bit we have, we just want to give. Okay, they are urgently pleading with Paul. Can we give, can we give some more? Because we just love, because he says, the church at Thessalonica and Philippi, they understood. They understood something about the discipline, the spiritual discipline of generosity. You can't outgive God. And the more you give, the more that he blesses your life. Now listen, you don't give in order to get. That should never be the motivation. But God is just so faithful to us that when we give to him through a church, through a ministry, he's always so good to take care of us. You can't outgive God. And Paul is stretching the church accord. He says, I want, you, I want you to grow. He says, I want you to excel, he says there in verse 7, in the grace of giving, just like you would excel, look again at verse 7, just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us. All right, now most people would read a list like I just read there, and you'd probably say to yourself, yeah, I need to grow in the area of my speech. You know, I need to discipline my tongue better. You know, I, I need to make sure that things that come out of my mouth, that not gossip, not slander, you know, not cursing. I, I need to say things that are good. Yes, Lord, grow me in the area of my speech. Yes, Lord, grow me in, in my faith. Yes, Lord, grow me in earnestness for the cause of Christ. Grow me in my love for others. Yes. But Paul actually lumps the principle of giving in with those spiritual concepts. He says, just like you excel in faith and speech and knowledge in earnestness and in your complete love for one another, I want you to excel in the grace of giving. Now, this is a topic that is found throughout the Bible. There are roughly 2,350 verses in the Bible concerning money. This is roughly twice as many verses than there are on faith and prayer combined in the Bible. 
Jesus spoke more about the stewardship of money than he spoke about heaven and hell combined. The only subject Jesus spoke more about than the issue of material things was the kingdom of God. 16 out of 38 parables that Jesus taught, almost half of the parables that Jesus taught dealt with money or material possessions. Why? Because God wants us to understand that there is a direct correlation between a person's spiritual life and his or her attitudes concerning material things. There's a correlation. And we cannot go through our spiritual lives under the illusion that there isn't, because there is. It is reflected in the way that we handle material things. Now, I'm aware, let me just say right up front, okay, because I already know whenever this subject is broached, some of you start to get restless. Oh, no, and I brought a friend tonight. I'm not going to ask for your money, all right? Don't worry about it. But I do know why some people bristle and they get a little uncomfortable and they squirm a little bit about this topic, okay? Two reasons. Number one, because the church, I don't mean our church, because I hope if you've been here very long, you know we don't beg for money, okay? But the church in general can be guilty overall of begging for people's money, and people get tired of hearing about that. And some people who have been exposed to that think that that's all churches do, who don't know better. Their concept of churches, they're just money-hungry people, and you know, when you go in, all they want is to shake you down and get, you know, take your money. Okay? So some people are uncomfortable with the topic because that's their unfortunate misperception of the church. But i got to be honest with you, the other reason why some people are uncomfortable with the topic is because, let's just be real, you think your money belongs to you. And so whenever anybody talks to you about the idea of giving and being generous, there's something in, again, it's a fleshly thing. It's an instinctive fleshly thing. There's something in us that kind of recoils. It says, don't, don't tell me what to do. This is mine. You know, I made this. I earned it. I deserve it. This is mine. There are some fundamental things as a Christian, okay? I'm going to give you four fundamental things. This does not apply to people who aren't Christians, If you are a follower of Christ, if you understand God and his economy of things in the universe, there are some basic foundational principles we need to understand about material things, okay? So for those of you who like to take notes, here's the first thing. The grace of giving, number one, everything belongs to the Lord. We are owners of nothing but stewards of everything. Everything belongs to God. Everything you have, the car you drive, the house you live in, the food you eat, It is all from the hand of God. It all belongs to God. So we have to be very careful in recognizing that this is God's. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And even if if you think to yourself, No, I, I worked hard for this. This is mine. Well, there's a Bible verse for that too. Because in Deuteronomy 8.18, it says, But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. In other words, the very fact that you have money in your pocket or in your bank account or that you own anything is because God has gifted you with the abilities and the skills to earn an income. That your very ability to make a living comes from God. Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, it just does. Your skill comes from above. 
So everything belongs to God. That's foundational principle number one. Number two, along these lines, since everything belongs to God, we must honor him with what he has given us. If it's all his, I have to take good care of it, and I have to honor him with what he has given us. Proverbs 3, 9 specifically says, honor the Lord with your wealth. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection as we explore more of the book of 2 Corinthians. There is no other book of the Bible that goes as in-depth into Paul's sufferings as 2 Corinthians. Paul didn't mention these things for bragging rights or for pity. On the contrary, in fact, Paul only mentioned the hardships he'd been through to prove that even though his pedigree as a Pharisee was top-notch, he could relate to anyone who has and will suffer for the sake of Christ. Being a Christian doesn't come easy, and Paul could attest to that firsthand. But his whole point in mentioning those things wasn't for you to focus solely on all the bad things he went through. His intent was to help his readers focus on the why of what he was doing, which was because of Jesus and his message spreading, no matter the personal cost. Are you living life in this way, willing to do whatever it takes for others to know about Jesus? If you're desiring to be with a community of believers who have this as their mission, then we'd love to meet you in person at Cornerstone Chapel. Head over to cornerstoneconnection.cc to find out more details as to where we meet and when. That's all for today here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.